This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We are pleased at the onset of today's program, which is going to be the seventh program before the election. We're doing a countdown. We're pleased to note that Stephen J. Harper will be joining us on next week's show. Stephen Harper is an attorney, adjunct professor at Northwest University Law School, and author of four books. We want him on because the excellent work he's currently doing on the BillMoyers.com website related to the pandemic timeline. He's been doing weekly, more or less weekly pandemic timelines since, I think, March. There's a lot of good data there, and we cannot recommend highly enough that you check out what he has put before the public. We were hoping to announce on today's program that we have a website that is up and rolling, but we're just a couple days away from being able to say that. We thus will have an announcement on next week's program. But in the meantime... You are able, dear listener, to get lots of data that is useful, valuable data at the BillMoyers.com website, courtesy of the pandemic timelines. I was really attracted by the subheadline on the Moyers page that said that Trump's lies are like zombies. Fact checkers keep killing them, but he keeps bringing them back to life and repeating them over and over again. The only antidote is the truth repeated over and over again. Words we certainly agree with. I'm looking at a page in front of me right now, the latest page on on the Moyers website, and the fourth item down in the Moyers and Democracy is 10 things to know about Trump's post-office scandal. We also expect to be relying a great deal upon these numerous timelines of Stephen J. Harper as a prelude to next week's actual discussion with him. If Stephen J. Harper is the good news we have on today's program, then the bad news will be titled Michael R. Caputo. We're going to have a lot to say about this clown as this show evolves. As we go before the microphones right now, he's, he's apologized to his staffers for some of his transgressions. And there is some hint in the media that, uh, well, he may be in trouble and perhaps needs to be replaced. And, well, we'll have plenty to say about that. Hold on. First, I want to talk about the fact that the President of the United States came to California. Yes, I'm looking at a photo of Donald Trump's arrival at McClellan Air Force Base in Sacramento. And I must say, it looks like a scene out of Men in Black. Trump is strolling on the tarmac with his red ties (laughs) on either side by four, what I guess are apparently Secret Service agents. He did come to share his wisdom with us, which, which did include, by the way, the following summary of what's going on in California. But with regard to the forest, when trees fall down after a short period of time, about 18 months, they become very dry. They become really like a matchstick. And, and they get up, you know, there's no more water pouring through, and they become very, very, well, they just explode. They can explode. And no, we don't know what the hell he's talking about either. In his briefing with state and federal officials, Governor Gavin Newsom told Donald Trump, we feel very strongly the hots are getting hotter and the dries are getting drier, which is certainly supported by climate data. Newsom added, something has happened to the plumbing of the world, and we come from a perspective humbly that we assert that the science is in, and the observed evidence is self-evident that climate change is real. He then said to Trump, please respect the difference of opinion out here with respect to the fundamental issue of climate change. 
to which the president said, absolutely. A few moments later, however, he added, it will start getting cooler. You just watch. And of course, someone did point out that soon after that, a few hours after that, the sun went down and it did get cooler. Joe Biden took the time to pillory the president for his response to the fires here in California, which have included blaming the state for doing a poor job of raking leaves in forests and threatened to withhold desperately needed federal aid. No, we, we don't know whether he did bring a bunch of rakes with him on Air Force One to help. We hope so. The LA Times noted that in addition to his um, description of trees as going up like matchsticks exploding, he said at one point, I was talking to the head of a foreign country, and they said, we consider ourselves a forest nation. We have trees that are far more explosive than they have here in California, and we don't have that problem. And no, we're not sure which country that was that has trees even more explosive than the ones here in California. The Times noted that the Trump administration has stymied California's race to move its electrical grid entirely to clean energy. It eliminated an Obama-era plan to help all states move in that direction, instead moving to an energy policy focused heavily on boosting the use of coal and other fossil fuels. On landing in California, Trump was asked why he waited so long to visit California as the fires have been raging for weeks. Said Trump, that's a nasty question. I got a call from your governor immediately. On that call, I declared it a national emergency. That's a nasty question. Well, just wait. We have more. To the surprise of many, Scientific American broke with its long-standing policy of not getting involved in politics and this year is, in fact, endorsing Joe Biden for president. We're not sure that actually they're endorsing Joe Biden so much as endorsing a vote against Donald J. Trump. After, after he said, it'll start getting cooler, you just watch, one of Gavin Newsom's top aides said that science disagreed with that. Trump shot back, I don't think science knows. And wouldn't you know it, fresh from today's headlines, he's appointing a new head to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, in this case, someone who is a climate change denier. In fact, I pulled out an old article related to all of this, dated 12-29-19. It was from the New York Times and noted that, you know, just months after Trump was elected, the Commerce Department disbanded a 15-person scientific committee that had explored how to make national climate assessments. The congressionally mandated studies of the risks of climate change which are more useful to local officials. It also closed the Office of Chief Economist, which for decades had conducted wide-ranging research on topics like the economic effects of natural disasters. Similarly, the Interior Department has withdrawn funding for its landscape conservation cooperatives, which are 22 regional research centers that tackled issues like habitat loss and wildfire management. And while California and Alaska used state monies to keep their centers open, 16 of 22 remain in limbo. That was in December. And of course, the president's anti-science views have been crucial to how he has responded to the COVID-19 crisis. In preparation for the website we're trying to create, yours truly has been reviewing the multiple timelines of Stephen Harper and many others. A little review might be worthwhile at this point. So I take us back to January 13th, 2017, one week before Donald Trump gets inaugurated as the 45th president of the United States. At that point in time, greater than 30 members of Trump's transition team attend a briefing with Obama officials, which describe an exercise simulating the worst global flu pandemic since 1918. 
Obama's Homeland Security Advisor was Lisa Monaco, and Trump's counterpart was Tom Bossert. They lead this discussion. In the simulation, a virus overwhelms the Asian medical systems. Shortages of key medical resources, including PPE and ventilators, are then anticipated. The lessons from this exercise were that we must bring decision makers in early, that transportation and containment are key, and that a coordinated, unified national response and messaging is paramount. It was noted that days and even hours can matter in a pandemic. But wouldn't you know it, six months later, July 20th, 2017, the National Security Council's Global Health Security Office, its pandemic response team, created by Obama in the 2014-2016 Ebola outbreak, gets together and Tom Bossert, Trump's homeland security guy, initiates development of a comprehensive biodefense strategy. A former admiral named Tim Ziemer becomes a senior director. Now, seven months after that, in February of 2018, U.S. intelligence services, in their worldwide threat assessment, warn of a danger of a virulent microbe with human-to-human spread, considering it a major potential threat. But doggone it, two months later, Trump fires Tom Bossert at the request of incoming advisor John Bolton. And one month later, May 10th, 2018, Trump dissolves the NSC's pandemic response team, and fires Director Zemer, leaving no senior official focused solely on global health security. At some point, Trump said, well, look, I'm a businessman. We don't want to have these people just sitting around doing nothing. If we need them, we'll hire them. And last year, July 2019, the Trump administration eliminated the American epidemiologist embedded in China's disease control agency. Her job was to train Chinese epidemiologists deployed to the epicenter of outbreaks to help track, investigate, and contain disease. She seemed pretty superfluous, wouldn't you say? So it was that this year, January 3rd, when CDC Director Robert Redfield warns Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar that China may have a new coronavirus, Azar tells his chief to notify the National Security Council saying, quote, this is a very big deal, unquote. It should be noted, sadly, that on this date, January 3rd, 2020, two-thirds of those people who were at that pandemic briefing back in January of 2017, in other words, 20 of the 30, are gone from the administration, including the people that were heading it. Now, it's worth noting that the CDC director and the Health and Human Services secretary both got that something was brewing in China that was a big deal. Four days later, on January 7th, China announced they had identified this virus as a novel coronavirus. And over at the World Health Organization, the executive director argues that as a respiratory pathogen, human-to-human transmission was possible. The next day, January 8th, the CDC launches its first emergency alert relating to this Wuhan outbreak. Two days later, January 10th, Tom Bossert, who's now out of the administration, tweets that we face a global health threat. On January 17th, the United States' CDC, Europe has one too, dispatches 100 people to LAX, SFO, JFK to complement existing staff screening all incoming flights from Wuhan. The next day, I love this, the next day, January 18th, was when, after trying for weeks to get him on the phone, Health and Human Services Secretary Azar finally succeeded and warned Trump about the virus. 
Trump interrupted him to criticize his handling of the aborted ban on vaping products. On January 20th, the U.S. and South Korea both confirmed the first cases of this Wuhan virus. South Korea immediately commences aggressive testing and contact tracing. For the next six weeks, the U.S. does virtually zero testing. One week after that, Trump says publicly, we have it totally under control. It's one person coming from China, and in fact, the day before, the CDC had confirmed the first American case, to which Trump added, it's going to be just fine. And of course, this is a wonderful supplement to the Bob Woodward revelation that six days after Trump is telling the public we have it under control, there's a top secret intelligence briefing with National Security Director Robert O'Brien giving Trump a warning saying that this coronavirus is going to be the biggest national security threat of his presidency. His deputy, Matt Pottinger, who is a former journalist and speaks Mandarin has, and has many connections in China, agreed with his boss, telling Trump it would be as bad as the 1918 flu pandemic, which killed 675,000 Americans. Pottinger adds that asymptomatic spread was occurring. And then he had been told, presumably from his Chinese sources, that 50% of the patients were showing no symptoms, yet spreading the disease. Presumably at this January 28th meeting, Trump starts thinking, maybe we would do something to slow down people coming here from China. And in fact, the next day, January 29th, Papua New Guinea banned Wuhan travelers. And the next day, January 30th, other nations started banning Chinese travelers. Not exactly the most advanced nations, when you take a look at the list. Afghanistan, the Bahamas, the Maldives, North Korea, Rwanda, Tajikistan, and Trinidad and Tobago. On that day, Trump on Fox says, China's not in great shape right now. We're working very closely with China and other countries. When Secretary Azar again warns Trump how bad this is going to be, Trump calls him alarmist. And on January 30th, the World Health Organization declares COVID a global emergency. At this point, there are 98 cases in 18 countries outside of China. Human-to-human transmission gets documented by the Germans, the Japanese, and the Vietnamese, and also in the U.S. The WHO urges all nations to review plans, find gaps, evaluate resources that are needed to identify, isolate, and treat. Also, to prevent transmission. We stress that. Identify, isolate, and treat. And of course, to isolate people, you have to contact trace. The next day, January 30th, Donald Trump announces travel restrictions from China. By this point, since January 1st, almost 400,000 passengers from China have arrived in the U.S. unrestricted. Trump falsely claims later he was the first one to ban travel from China. By the time he implements it on February 2nd, greater than 20 other nations had already done so, including Antigua and Barbuda, Brunei, the Cook Islands, El Salvador, Guatemala, Guyana, Iran, Jamaica, Kiribati, Morocco, Micronesia, and the Solomon Islands. By the way, Trump's ban, so-called ban, restricting travelers from China, only applied to non-U.S. citizens. There was no process set up to screen, test, or quarantine U.S. citizens, permanent residents, or their relatives. There's a lot of people that I see online on Facebook and places arguing, oh my God, Trump's done so much. He's done these, these, he's restricted travel. 
Well, he did. Finally, after listening to some of his advisors who'd been trying to reach him since January 3rd, on February 7th, Trump tweeted, just had a long and very good conversation with President Xi of China. President Xi strongly leads a very successful operation. We're working closely with China to help. At which point, the Trump administration ships 18 tons of medical equipment to China, including masks, gowns, gauze, and respirators. The same day, Trump sits down with Bob Woodward, who asks him what President Xi has just said to him, to which he said, It goes through the air, Bob. You just breathe the air. That's how it's passed. It's more deadly than your strenuous flu. So, he knew very early on, by the end of January, it would have been nice if he'd acted in the beginning of January, but he knew by the end of January, yet on February 10th, Trump said publicly, I think the virus is going to be fine. Adding, China is very professionally run, it's under control. We just sent some of our best people over there. The World Health Organization and a lot are composed of our people. They're fantastic. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about the timeline right now. We're in February. February was the month where action should have been taken, if not January. Well, I guess I have to round this out a bit. In March, when actions were finally taken, first, from where I'm sitting right now in the Bay Area, from local health authorities, ahead of state authorities, ahead of what limited recommendations came from federal authorities. When Columbia University took a very close look at this... In May, the epidemiologist there estimated that if Trump had acted to mitigate the viral spread one week earlier, in other words, March 9th before March 16th, oh, and on March 16th, he did finally recommend for the, for the next 15 days, Americans avoid groups greater than 10, they work at home, and they avoid unnecessary shopping. Oh, and they should also avoid eating in restaurants. Nothing said about wearing masks. Nothing said about social distancing. Nevertheless, given these limited recommendations, Columbia University said that had he acted one week earlier, March 9th instead of the 16th, he would have saved 36,000 lives by May 3rd. Had he acted two weeks earlier, March 2nd, they estimate he would have saved 54,000 lives. Now, yours truly looked up the numbers that were relevant for this May 3rd estimation. By May 3rd, 63,000 Americans had died. Thus, if you take that estimate of 36,000 lives saved, that means you would have saved 57% of the lives lost. 54,000 divided by 63,000 is 86% of the deaths that could have been avoided by acting two weeks earlier. We're talking about March, not even acting in February, let alone acting in January. Thus, I think it is fair to say that the excess deaths in America, and you know, there were going to be deaths in America once this thing got out of China, people were going to die all over the world. The Chinese did not do a good job. However, once it escaped, Other nations could have applied basic epidemiology involving testing, contact tracing, and isolation to limit it. New Zealand acted very aggressively and basically is COVID-free, more or less, at the moment. That's not something that these nations can sustain. As long as it's out there by the millions, it's going to creep back. But if you institute proper medical treatment, testing, 
contact tracing, isolating, using methods that will limit its spread like masks, social distancing, etc., well, then you have a possibility of getting it under reasonable control. Reasonable control would not be 200,000 dead, which it looks as though, according to my website, the U.S. achieved a few hours ago. In fact, of course, we hit 200,000 weeks ago, given that an awful lot of people out there have passed away from COVID but were not counted because, well, they didn't get a test. Why didn't they get a test? Well, tests are still not available. I spoke in the last few days with a good friend of mine who works in a laboratory, a medical laboratory, and was recounting to her how it was on March 6th. March 6th, Trump told the nation that anyone who wants a test can get one, and she just sort of rolled her eyes and said, it's six months later. We still can't get the tests we need. She added a fascinating addendum to that, which was that the government gave them, gave them 6,000 antibody tests, pretty much for free. Now, you know, when you get something for free, uh, you got to realize sometimes there's, you know, it's because there's not that much value attached to it. She said, that's how we're treating the antibody test. We don't trust it. We're not using it. We're not even letting people know we have it. We're not sure what to do with the information if somebody tests positive with an antibody test. That's not the test we need. And yet here we are in America putting it in reverse on testing. Donald Trump, as he's made it clear on many, many occasions, equates high testing numbers with discrediting him and making him look bad. He didn't want to let the cruise ship in February dock in the Bay Area and unload its passengers because it would increase the number of cases in the United States. Trump said, I like the numbers where they are now. I mean, Trump made it clear he thought testing was a bad idea back in like March 6th when the Grand Princess was off the San Francisco coast in limbo. Trump said he didn't want the infected passengers offloaded because it would raise the case count here in America. Said Trump, I like the numbers where they are. Don't need numbers to double because of a ship that wasn't our fault. Of course, on March 11th, Anthony Fauci told Congress that while the flu has a mortality rate of 0.1%, COVID-19 is, in his words, 10 times that. And of course, it may be considerably worse than that. On that same day, Donald Trump did announce restrictions on travelers from Europe. They were effective three days later. Becoming pretty obvious at this point that the U.S. was not doing the necessary testing. Asked at a press conference if he takes responsibility for the delay in testing, Trump said, I don't take responsibility at all. When queried by reporters about dismantling the pandemic response team, Trump called the question nasty and claimed to know nothing about it. And while he does declare a national emergency on March 13th, he does not invoke the Defense Protection Act that would mobilize our national resources. This remains a big deal, people. On June, on June 20th, that is Tulsa rally, Trump said, when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people. You're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Immediately, of course, people in the Trump campaign just say, oh, the president was just kidding. But two days later, he said, I don't kid. Let me tell you. Let me make it clear. Referring to Stephen Harper's timeline on how America needs a new CDC whistleblower, the question of why does it matter to public health, the question of testing, Harper said, a COVID-19 test reveals whether an individual is infected. That's particularly important for those who have been exposed to the virus but don't have symptoms. 
They could be pre-symptomatic and highly contagious. The CDC estimates that 50% of COVID-19 spread occurs prior to the onset of symptoms for those who develop them. Or they could be among the estimated 40% of infected individuals who never develop any symptoms but nevertheless can infect others who can get sick and die. To which he adds, a test is the only way to identify those pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic people, to isolate them and trace their contacts with others. And that's the only way to stop a pandemic. So it was that up till August 24th, the CDC's policy was that if you have been exposed to COVID, you should be tested. But as the Republican National Convention wrapped up its opening day and the pandemic continued to ravage the nation, the Center for Disease Control quietly revised its website to call for less COVID testing. It did so with no press release, no media briefing, and, of course, no underlying scientific basis for the change. Reactions were swift around the nation. The American Medical Association called the change a recipe for community spread. The Association of American Medical Colleges warned the new guidelines were irresponsible and would result in less testing at exactly the time when we need more testing. The Infectious Disease Society of America called for the immediate reversal of the abrupt revision. The Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America vehemently disagreed with the new guidelines, that's in quotes, and urged the CDC to rescind them. The American Public Health Association was deeply concerned with the dramatic shift from previous federal guidelines and worried that this change was the result of political pressure. I know we're going to have a lot more to say about that as we go along. The American Academy of Pediatrics urged the CDC to reverse its inexplicable decision because, quote, it was a dangerous step backwards in our efforts to control this deadly virus. I think it's fair to say there's a, there's a broad medical consensus that this is a really stupid thing to do. Why would we do it? Well, Dr. Scott Atlas, who is a senior fellow at the conservative think tank Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's also a diagnostic radiologist of some repute in that discipline, who went on to Fox News with, these, his, with a rather crackpot epidemiologic suggestion that, quote, People are kidding themselves about the value of testing individuals that don't have symptoms. Atlas had been informally advising the White House after Trump saw him on Fox, where he was echoing Trump's view on the need to reopen schools and railing against the frenzy, as he put it, of mass testing. By August 10th, Trump introduced Dr. Atlas as the newest member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And what do you know? The task force had a change of heart. The Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, Dr. Brett Girard, who's supposed to be the testing czar, tried to explain the CDC's abrupt reversal. He claimed that this was a consensus viewpoint. Stephen Harper notes that Dr. Atlas had a hostility to widespread testing as a matter of public record. Dr. Redfield of the CDC was muzzled. The CDC, in the wake of this decision, directed all questions about the change to health and human services which, of course, set off alarm bells suggesting that HHS, not the CDC, initiated and ordered the change. Gee, do you think? Dr. Hahn at the FDA didn't speak publicly about the change, and neither did Dr. Burks. And although Dr. Brett Girard claimed that Anthony Fauci was in on the decision-making, it turned out he, in fact, was under general anesthesia during the meeting. Not at the meeting under general anesthesia, getting operated on elsewhere. Now, that's August 24th. We're in the middle of September. These are still the new guidelines at the CDC. The medical community over at Stanford is not pleased (laughs) at the uh, activity of uh, their former brethren. We're going to talk about that, I think, in our second segment because we're just about out of time here. So, I need to pause, have a drink, perhaps a stiff drink, 
and continue after a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Please don't go away.